Welcome everyone to the next session of Big Data Systems. And in this part and the series of videos, we will talk about data centers and cloud computing. And so the, the lecture contains a couple of things. Uh, first, we will talk about the, the overall characteristics and setup of a data center and the hardware. Then we'll talk about the virtualization, uh, scheduling, and finally about cloud computing in a bit more detail. And um, these lectures or these videos and my slides are partially based on some of the material that I list here. So in the lecture, we're right now at the infrastructure part. So in this set of videos, we will cover the hardware, the scheduling and virtualization, and also like an overall cloud setup, which is used in many, um, in many data centers or basically in all data centers. And so with that, let me start with an overview of data centers. So uh, first let's look at the hardware. And basically um, everything starts with CPUs and typically we have commodity server CPUs in the data center. Um, so this could be Intel or AMD CPUs typically. And these are then put in servers with uh, multiple sockets with RAM and disk. And uh, many of these servers will be put into a rack. So typically 16 to 64 servers with an, a top of the rack switch, meaning that all of these will be closely connected. And then we have many of these uh, racks in a cluster. And uh, for each cluster, again, we have a cluster switch which connects all racks together. And then many of these clusters will form actually a data center. And a typical today, or not a typical, but a large data center, such data centers that Google or Amazon will uh, deploy are over 100,000 servers. So actually many servers, and you, could, you can see an image of a Google data center in the Netherlands. So, we already talked about a bit about the hardware. So we have commodity CPUs and um, multi uh, CPU servers. So typically it's one or two sockets um, in each server. And but there's also new stuff coming up. So besides the basic uh, basic server CPUs that you typically know, also from your desktop, uh, today uh, you often also find GPUs in a data center, meaning that you can do uh, additional AI workloads or, or basic computation uh, much faster using these, for example, NVIDIA uh, GPUs. Then you also find FPGAs and custom accelerators. So say, for example, Google's TPU for tensor processing, but also ASICs for AI or for cryptocurrencies or some Bitcoin mining, for example, there's specific hardware just doing this. And um, then besides the typical compute hardware and maybe storage hardware, you will also find custom designed servers that are set up especially for certain kind of um, uh, applications. So let's say they, well, let's say for application classes. And uh, these few configurations then can be uh, used across many different applications. So you would have uh, app servers, say, for example, for, uh, for the web, for database applications, for MapReduce type of processing, and for random stuff or other stuff. And here on the, on the right side, you can actually see uh, the, the 
uh, Facebook server configuration. So you can see that there's different kind of uh, CPU uh, requirements, different kind of memory requirements, depending on what type of application is run, and also the type of uh, disk requirements and, and what is run on these. So say, for example, for a web server, you need a good CPU. So this needs to be fast, but you don't need that much memory and you don't need that much disk. On the other end, um, if you want, say, for example, do a database, then you need a lot of disk and, and fast disk. At the same time, you don't necessarily need the fastest CPU, but good CPU. And uh, then, say, for example, for uh, Hadoop, um, you also want to have a lot of disk and because you're using all of this parallelism in the, in the, on the disk. And um, you try to have a good balance uh, between the nodes and, a, 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 let's say, a, a balanced power budget also, because this is something you really have to take care of, that how much power do, does each, or each of these nodes require and how much power can you actually put into a rack. And uh, so besides the compute hardware, we also, of course, need storage hardware. And um, the, so basic stuff is just disk trays. So you will have really uh, server uh, trays that have many disks. And then you also find uh, SSDs and NVMe, or um, so um, basically faster SSD um, disks that are connected via PCI Express bus. But then on top of that, you can also find non-volatile memory. So this is something that we also work a lot with, uh, which is basically RAM, uh, which doesn't lose its, uh, its data when the power is disconnected. And at the same time, um, can store more data than typical RAM. So we can, this is an uh, NVM dim and in, in such a dim you can uh, roughly store four times the amount that you could store in a ram dim and uh, at the same time it's a bit slower uh, and then there's new archival storage say for example you can store things on glass and with this you, you achieve much larger storage capacities and there's two, two basic setups. So either uh, you have the, the storage with the compute. So say in a Hadoop setup, for example, as we learned in, in one of the earlier lectures, um, you want to have the storage close to the compute. In many other setups, you actually have dedicated storage nodes that are connected through network. And um, there, so this is often the case in many um, enterprise applications. And uh, Additionally, so now we have compute and we have storage. Uh, additionally, we also need a network. And so basically the, the basic network um, is, is ethernet. So a typical switch would be 40 gigabyte ethernet, but you can have up to 100 gigabyte ethernet. And uh, this is in the, usually in some kind of tree topology. So um, as I already said, you have a uh, a top of rack switch which connects all of the clusters or all of the servers in a rack then you have uh, cluster switches that connect all of the rack switches and typically you have multiple of those so there's not just a single connection or not just a single switch um, that connects all of the racks in the cluster but multiple in order to have redundancy and in order to have be able to reroute things in there 
And then there's modern additions again. Um, so you have software defined networking where you can specify how much um, data actually, or how much bandwidth you give to which connection. And you can also have smart NICs that do like more efficient routing in such a setup. Additionally, we have RDMA, so remote direct memory access. Uh, for this, you usually use InfiniBand or um, converged ethernet. So this is a special type of ethernet um, where you can directly access another server's memory rather than doing a TCP IP connection. And uh, you can also use FPGAs for doing the network um, traffic or for dealings with some of the network traffic. And with this, you can also do some pre-computation um, or processing on the data inside the network, essentially. And this, uh, for example, in Microsoft, you have Microsoft Catapult. So uh, Microsoft data centers are actually set up with FPGAs on each uh, node. So you have lots uh, of options to do more processing in the network already. So let's look at the cost for all of this. Um, typically, this is set up or split up in two things. You have the capital expenses and the uh, operational expenses. So this is the total cost, cost of ownership uh, is on the one hand, the money that you need to buy uh, all of the hardware and build uh, the data center, et cetera. And then the money that you need to just run it. Uh, so for energy mostly and things like that. And uh, we have an example for Amazon uh, service that was uh, published by James Hamilton at some point. So here you can see that um, the, the servers are actually the most expensive part. So this is uh, the, the, the top part for a certain amount of years, basically. So un until um, you have um, their, their run out of use or they get too old, then uh, you have energy, uh, then cooling, then networking, and then other costs just for providing uh, the space, etc. And uh, so you can see that um, so the, 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 uh, from an operator perspective, the capital expenses is the building, the generators, cooling, uh, compute storage, network, hardware, etc. And of course, you also need the spares. And this is typically amortized over three to 15 years. So this means after depending on, on your model, either after three or after 15 years, you're basically saying, okay, this is out of use. And then you have the operational expenses, which are electricity, people, so employees, um, wider network, so connecting the, uh, the data center to other, um, to the internet and to other data centers, insurance, and of course, repairs, et cetera. And from the user perspective, is basically uh, the, the capital expenses is the cost of long-term leases on the hardware and services and the, the uh, operational expenses is basically the cost per use on the hardware and services and the, the people that need to use this. And in general, we can see that uh, the hardware really dominates the total cost of ownership. And this means that it makes sense to uh, make the hardware cheap. So, of course, I mean, on the one hand, you buy in bulk, but at the same time, you don't want to buy the latest and greatest CPU, but you want to buy something that has a good trade-off in, in cost and performance. And um, at the same time, you really need to utilize it. So it uh, doesn't make sense to, to buy a lot of servers and switch them off. 
um, because then you're just losing money as an as a provider of a data center. But at the same, so rather you want to actually compute something on your data center all the time and make some money with that, even if the jobs are producing less money than, um, let's say, your typical uh, transactional database, just because uh, switching the servers off uh, will essentially uh, cost you money over time. So we said we have many servers and uh, with many servers, we know there uh, is a problem with reliability uh, or something will break all the time. So we already heard this earlier, but I will go to a bit more detail here. And uh, so in general, we can talk about different metrics for reliability. And um, here I have three. Uh, so the failure in time or fit is basically the failures per billion hours of operation. And uh, you compute this using the mean time to failure. And the mean time to failure is uh, basically the time until um, your system produces the first incorrect output or doesn't produce output anymore. And then um, from the start of the failure, you have a time until the system runs again uh, properly. And this is the mean time to repair. This is basically the time to detect the problem and then repair the problem as well. And so in general, um, you have a correct state of the system, then you have a failure state, and then you have a correct state again and so on. And the correct state, uh, until the failure happens is the mean time to failure, then you have the failure until the run system runs in the correct state again, you have the mean time to repair and so on. And the steady state availability of the system is just the mean time to failure divided by the mean time to failure plus the mean time to repair, which is basically all time. So with that, um, you can compute how reliable your system is. And typically this is done in um, in quantile, so you say 99.9% .9 of the time, uh, that's how reliable your system is. And this is then basically means depending on the nines that you add, means how um, much time the system can be down in a year, for example. And this is the guarantee that the data center provider will give to a customer typically. So let's look at Google numbers again. So we've seen this before, uh, but I it's, I think it's interesting to repeat again. So in a typical data center in Google, you have um, like every two years, basically, you have overheating, meaning that um, you have to power down most machines within five minutes and you have, it takes one or two days to recover. And this means basically every two years, uh, just the whole data center will be down for at least one day. That already gives you a bit of a perspective of, um, yeah, using a single data center won't give you many nines in, uh, in uh, fault tolerance. And uh, then uh, you have one uh, power distribution unit failure, uh, meaning that uh, many machines suddenly disappear. I mean, typically you have multiple PDUs in, a, in such a data center, but then it takes six hours roughly to come back. Um, you have to move a rack, and this means you have to yeah, have plenty of warnings. Uh, 500 to 1,000 machines are powered down. Again, it takes about six hours to come back. Uh, you do network rewiring. Uh, so this means uh, that uh, yes, some of the switches are reconnected in different ways. 
And uh, this means, of course, there's, as I told you, there is redundancy, but this means that some of the network will be slower. And um, so this, and sometimes even some machines will be down. Um, you have rack failures uh, and in each rack, uh, there's 40 to 80 machines uh, in Google. And this takes a while. You have racks that go wonky. So all of a sudden the, the racks don't really work that well anymore and you lose a lot of packets. So a lot of the network um, is gone. Uh, you have network maintenance, you have route, uh, router reloads, you have router failures, um, you have some kind of uh, problems with the DNS, again, uh, costing you a lot of trouble, uh, causing you a lot of trouble in the network. And then you have thousands of individual failures and um, thousands of individual hardware drive failures, meaning, and here they say up to 5% uh, of all disks will die. And for if, I mean, on a single server, this might happen, might not happen, but across, like if you have uh, 10,000s of servers, then you can uh, reliably basically calculate with these numbers, meaning that, um, yeah, five, you have to replace essentially 5% of your disks in a year. And this means like every day, somebody has to walk around and replace disks in your data center. And I mean, besides that, we have other issues. So we have configuration issues, uh, software updates, software bugs, and you have uh, transient errors. So something that you uh, you don't really see all the time or that, that all of a sudden appears. So you have no space left on a device, which makes this device yeah, appear weird uh, and not work very well. You have uh, memory corruption or stragglers. And at scale, uh, the, the error rates increase, right? And uh, especially for cost-effective commodity hardware, this is true. So you have uh, many errors um, that, and I mean, here you can see on this, on this graph on the right side, this is for certain error probabilities. So if you have a probability of 1% um, in your system and you have a hundred tasks, and so in 1% um, case, uh, the, the task will go, uh, or one task will break, and your job is of 100, or it consists of 100 tasks. This means that almost with a certainty of one, um, uh, so with 100% certainty, almost 100% certainty, your um, task will not finish, or the 100, complete 100 task will not finish. And, um, this is, of course, also scales. So you, the more tasks you have, the higher, uh, basically, um, the chances for, for tasks um, breaking or for individual tasks breaking, depending on the probability of individual failures. And uh, so say, for example, we have uh, one per thousand um, tasks break, then if we have um, if we have 100 tasks, the probability is not so high still. So there we're in the 10%, probably something like that. But if we have uh, 10,000 tasks, then we're more or close to one, uh, meaning that it's very likely that tasks will break. And you also need this fault tolerance for the, for the storage and for the data analysis, of course. And um, there's different ways to achieve uh, cost-effective fault tolerance. And uh, on the one hand, 
you don't go with the traditional database asset, meaning uh, atomicity, um, consistency, um, isolation and durability, which a database will provide, but you say uh, it's a bit more flexible. Uh, so you have a base, it's basically available, it doesn't have to be available all the time. Uh, there's soft state, uh, which you can rebuild, and it's eventually consistent. And there's a couple of effective techniques for fault tolerance. Uh, so on the one hand, you, you replicate, and you do this for storage and you do this for compute. So meaning that you can run uh, tasks multiple times. So we heard this for MapReduce already. If a task breaks, then we just recompute it. And uh, if a task is slow, we will also let it run in parallel and see which one is faster. And um, the same, of course, we can do for storage. So we can just uh, replicate or we use something like error correction codes or erasure coding to see where uh, we have a problem in order to recompute the data. And then also we can do checkpointing. So if, uh, if we have a, a long ongoing state transition, so we, we have to somehow accumulate some information, um, then we, we store an intermediate state in a checkpoint. And we can use lineage, which is basically means we remember how we actually produced some kind of state. So how did we um, produce an intermediate result in our produce, for example? And if we know that, then we can use this lineage information to recompute all of that. So key availability techniques are basically replication, um, which is good for performance and availability. Partitioning is also good for performance and availability. Then load balancing, which just will give you better uh, performance. Um, then you can set up watchdog timers that just check if everything is good. Uh, you can check uh, set integrity checks again for checking um, if the results of your computation are correct or your data is correct. You can build canaries, which is essentially a small tool that just checks or a small program that just checks if there's something wrong. So just like in mining and like um, if uh, like in the past or in, in ancient times, essentially people would take canneries into mines. And if the, the cannery uh, basically dies, then you know the air is bad because the cannery needs fresher air than human and then if you see okay cannery is there uh then or lies down then okay let's get out of the mine and similarly you can build small programs that just check a certain state and uh you can use eventual consistency which will give you better performance as well for eventual consistency means that um, rather than being consistent all the time so as soon uh, as you do a change you see that like all of the processes in the uh, that also work with the same data see this change um, you're okay with a change appearing over time so i mean a good example would be a web index so a web index um, if you google for something a new website that has just been set up you won't find it because the web index is only created every or rebuilt or updated every now and then and so it takes some time for this update to kick in and be in the, in the index. And, um, and so the idea is also to, to make sure that the application do reasonable stuff uh, if something's not correct, rather than just let them break. And 
Again, we saw this in MapReduce, right? So if we see certain blocks don't work, we'll try again. But if the block essentially uh, just doesn't work, then we'll just skip it and report an error for that. And um, this is better than, than doing nothing or completely breaking. And also if there's problems in the system, so all, all of a sudden your servers are slow, um, it's better to do uh, more aggressive load balancing than just uh, dropping all, um, or just being super slow or just dropping everything. And so the idea here is that it's better to satisfy 80% of the users rather than satisfy nobody. So you will have a few poor users that are unhappy, but at least some of the users are going to be happy. And so with that, in order to use the hardware efficiently, we use virtualization. And this is what I will explain in the next video.